This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, är så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yeah! Carlson, Thank you everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, as always, is the fantasy hockey robot, the maestro of the matchup, the player projection pundit, the ad drop ace, the IPP MVP, Brian Com. Hello, Elon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another wonderful jam-packed episode you think there hasn't been anything going on in hockey you're wrong we have so much to talk about on this show and right off the top we have a huge announcement to make elon we're making history we're gonna try okay so yeah we thought we'd start by letting you guys know that we're gonna be doing something a little special we've decided brian and i thought at the start of the season you know how like you guys want to hear all of our analysis for all the different players there's a lot of questions what do you think this player's gonna do what do you think this player's gonna do we try our best to pack as much info as we can to a given episode but what if you want more why not make an audio fantasy hockey guide that's right you heard me correctly you know when you can buy those guides you look through every single player you see projections you read little blurbs about them how about that as all audio Keeping Carlson goodness coming to your ear. So we're going to try this out. We're making a Kickstarter to see if people will be interested. I'm talking a full-on audio book. There's going to be one chapter per team, talking probably 30, 40 minutes on each team, over 15, 20 hours total of analyses of every single fantasy-relevant player in the NHL. That's a project that we are going to try doing in August. And if enough of you are interested, we're, yeah, we're going to do it. So to show that you're interested, to get in on the ground floor, keepingcarlson.com slash guide is where you can find all the project details. Check it out. See if it's something you're interested in. We hope you are. And if you are, we're going to do it. Yeah, if you go check out our Kickstarter page at keepingcarlson.com slash guide, like Brian said, you'll see all the information about what you get. We're charging $15 flat fee to get all the perks. Not only are you going to get all of this audio, you'll also get our set of projections that we come up with as we're recording. But We even have a video up there that you can watch. So we won't bother you too much about it, but check it out. We're very excited about this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We hope that enough people will be interested and then we'll do that. But forgetting about that, we actually have an episode right now to record with a lot of stuff to talk about. And just before we get to the show that we have all planned out, that we've carefully crafted for everybody, let's first mention that we are presented by our very best friends over at DauberHockey.com, who if you think we're heroic to be churning out fantasy content 
in the second week of June between the Stanley Cup and still a week away from the draft. They're doing it every single day over at DauberHockey.com, and they're going to be doing it all the way through the summer. Features, ramblings, prospects, everything. Go check it out, DauberHockey.com. And okay, with that, Brian, like you said, we have a lot to talk about. People might think, okay, there's not that much that's going on. The draft hasn't even happened yet. But we've also been accumulating a lot of news over the past few weeks. And we're going to get to all of it today. We're going to clear the cupboards, Brian. We're covering everything. So we'll be fresh and ready for the next episode, which is where things will really ramp up with the draft and all the trades and the free agency. The episode after that's going to be crazy. But we actually had a big trade a couple days ago. I'm out Friday with some friends, not thinking about hockey, get a notification on my phone. Big trade, the Habs, they did it again. Exactly one year after their big trade last year where they sent Sergachev over to the Lightning for Druin. Now we've got another big deal for them. They sent Alex Galchenyuk to the Arizona Coyotes for Max Domi, and we're going to break it all down here. And you know what? Two years ago, the Habs traded P.K. Subban for Shea Weber. So this is their annual summer tradition to make a huge trade, make a big splash. And once again, we have to look and see what are the Habs doing? Does this make any sense? And of course, since we're a fantasy hockey podcast, we're going to break down the full impact on both of these players and also the players they play with, who benefits, who maybe doesn't benefit from that player joining or leaving the team. But Brian, overall, before we get into all the fantasy implications, what are your like general thoughts on the trade? Like who won, who lost? Well, the trade looks a little better in the morning after Domi signed for a very modest $6 million over two years. I think that's pretty good value for him, at least for two years. And then I'm not sure what he's going to cost. But aside from that, that's, that's as optimistic as I'm going to get for Habs fans. I just wanted to start off on a positive because I'm really not sure what the thought process is in Montreal other than, uh, hey, uh, we really don't like Alex Galchenyuk. And we didn't like him so much that we were ready to sell him at a loss. This seemed personal on both ends to some extent, too. Like we'd seen not just Galchenyuk, but also Max Domi getting buried further down the lineup than we'd expected him to get buried in Arizona. Didn't seem like a favorite of Rick Toggett. So a couple fresh starts now for a couple players who could stand to benefit from them. But for Montreal, it's particularly weird. The Habs were the third most goal-poor team in the NHL last season. And no better than the middle of the pack the year before. So to deal Alex Galchenyuk, a former 30-goal scorer, and the Habs' fourth best goal scorer over the last two seasons, which doesn't take a lot, but still, that's where he, he stands in, in the franchise over the last two years. They traded him. He's also their power play trigger man. They're going to miss him there, too. It's super odd, and it's even more odd that they traded him for Max Domi, who is not a goal scorer himself. He has just 36 goals in over two and a half seasons worth, actually almost three seasons worth of NHL games, and who scored just four even strength goals in the entire 2017-18 season, along with one lone power play goal and four empty netters. And adding to the weirdness, Montreal was already thin up the middle thanks to their stubbornness and not wanting to let Galchenyuk play center. And then, of course, they dealt Plakenitz at the deadline. Uh, and then this deal doesn't even address that need by bringing a center. They're bringing another winger. So are we to expect Jonathan Drouin to continue in the role as, as top-line center? And then, like, have Philip Deneau as the second-line center? Or Andrew Shaw? or Jacob Delarose, like you've got a depth chart now in Montreal that features a non-natural center on the top line and then like three bottom six options following. So, sorry, Elon, you probably, you asked for my overall thoughts. Maybe I've strayed from that, uh, but, but to put a bow on it, you can tell I'm pretty confused about what exactly this does to make Montreal better 
uh, aside from, in their opinion, they get rid of a player that they didn't like and whose value they spent an entire year diminishing to put themselves in a position to not get a better return than they did. Yeah, I yeah, I just feel like of all the positions the Habs need to fill, like I assumed if they were going to trade Galchenyuk, it would be for a center since they decided he's not a center there. By the way, news out of Arizona is they're definitely going to be giving Galchenyuk a chance to be a center there. We'll talk about that in a second when we get to the Coyotes. But I would have thought either they go for a center or they go for a defenseman, right? Because they're pretty shallow there after Weber and Petrie. Like who's even there on Montreal right now? Jordy, Ben, Carl Alsner. I saw a rumor that they might sign who was it like another really uh, old and not worthwhile defenseman to big money uh, i'll remember that in a little bit and get back to you we were chatting about it on our facebook group but it just seems like the haves i agree with you i just don't know what they're doing and i don't really like the trade for them at all like max domi like you said he's not a goal scorer you said he has four empty net goals like over his career those were all like last season he scored nine goals last season four of them in the empty net so actually yeah, only five real goals that is what i said okay crazy like so- last season not in his career yeah. So, okay. Let's dig into this now. Fantasy impact. Who knows? Maybe the Habs will prove us wrong, but I am loving this for Arizona. I'll say that right away. But again, let's start with the Habs. So last year, like I said, they traded Sergachev for Druin. I guess the jury is still out on that trade, but there's no doubt that Druin was a disappointment for the Habs last year. Like actually our original plan for this episode, before I realized we had enough content in the cupboards to get through, I was thinking of talking about players who had disappointing seasons. And I actually made a fun spreadsheet of all of the players who had drop-offs and their percentage drop-off from the year before. And I ranked them. And Jonathan Druin actually had the 16th biggest drop from two seasons ago to last season, going from 53 points in 73 games in his last season with Tampa to only 46 points in 77 games with the Habs last year. So that's an 18% decrease. And the Habs and anyone who drafts Max Domi Better hope Domi doesn't suffer a similar fate that Druin did because he's already coming off a disappointing season himself where he put up, like you said, nine goals, 45 points in 82 games for Arizona. So Max Domi then suffers some sort of Montreal effect and has an 18% decrease in his points per game. We're talking about a 30-something point guy, which is definitely not what Alex Galchenyuk can be. So yeah, going into last season with Max Domi, like we were actually expecting and hoping that he would be a top-line, top-power play guy with guys like Derek Stepan and Clayton Keller. By the end of the year, he was spending time with the likes of Dylan Strome and Zach Ronaldo. And we know Dylan Strome has some hype to him. Maybe he'll be good one day. But it was actually Richard Panic who stepped in and reaped the benefits of playing with the two top guys in Arizona. And we saw how good things were looking for Richard Panic. So it's like, that could have been Max Domi, but he just couldn't get that spot. Now Domi goes to the Habs, where he signed a two-year deal also yesterday. And especially with Galchenyuk out of the picture, we assume Max Domi will find himself on the top power play, I would think, with Druin and Pacioretty and Gallagher and Shea Weber. I can't imagine who else gets that spot, but who knows with the Habs. And then as far as even strength goes, hard to predict what the Habs will do, but I'd assume Domi's in the top six. So based on our limited information we have right now, like on the, on the plus side, Domi's probably a top six guy and probably a top power play guy. So maybe this is good for his fantasy value. He's only 23 years old. So perhaps he's bound for an increase in production. Like maybe regardless of what team he was going to be on next year was going to be his year. We've heard of people speculate the fourth year is the, the big jump for players and he's going into his fourth season. So what do you think about Max Domi going to the Habs? Is this good or bad for his fantasy value? This trade probably helps Max Domi's fantasy value. Domi began the year getting top-end ice time. Those minutes fell away quickly, though, and he was never trusted with that many minutes again through the rest of the season. Elon, you already covered how that was reflected in his line mates. And in that process, you also reminded us that Zach Ronaldo is actually still a player in the NHL. As for what Montreal can do for Domi, 
I think they're going to want to offer him a bigger role next season, if only to, you know, be able to stroke their egos or, or take roll the dice so that they can congratulate themselves for making what they think is a brilliant deal. Though the problem for Domi is that he's a setup man. He's a playmaker. And well, who exactly is there for him to make plays with in Montreal? Maybe he can feed Shea Weber one-timers. Maybe he can help Max Pacioretty find his game again. But outside of those possibilities, well, just Brendan Gallagher, he had a lot of goals last season. Yeah, so Brendan Gallagher, Jonathan Druin, sure. But there's not a world of opportunity for Max Domi to hypothetically create a whole lot of offense with. There are not a lot of natural scorers that he gets to play with. There's no, there's no like obvious trigger man aside from Pacioretty. Should the Habs be able to add another finisher in the offseason? That would obviously help Max Domi. But again, regardless of whether they do add that finisher... Look, he wasn't in good shape in the Arizona depth chart. So regardless, just getting top line or top six status, hopefully getting regular turns on the top power play is going to automatically give him a nice bump. So that's like the contextual factor. How does Montreal help Max Domi? How does Max Domi help himself, though? There wasn't a whole lot of growth to be found in his year-over-year individual shot generation numbers, which is not a good thing. But again, could be a function of the way that Domi seemed to have fallen out of favor with Arizona coach Rick Tockett. But Domi is a young player, like you said, Elon, still developing. And I did. We, we got asked a lot of questions through the year about Max Domi. What's the deal with him? And I went to bat for him saying, I think he has more to offer than the numbers he was putting up. I would still just really temper my expectations uh, just to, you know, I, I want him to break out and take that huge leap in Montreal. But after having said all that I just did, you know, I'm not anticipating a suddenly 60, 65 point breakout season. If Jonathan Druin came to Montreal and had the season he had, I feel like Max Domi needs to have that season as well first before moving even beyond that. Yeah, I'm with you. It's hard to imagine Domi's going to do better than Druin can do. And yeah, so it'll be interesting to follow with the Habs. I guess one maybe piece of good news for them is Shea Weber will be healthy, I guess. And so they'll have a good defenseman to move the puck. And we'll actually get to him a little bit later on the show. I had a question for you about him. But I guess overall, I guess the final question to ask about this is, does this affect any other players on Montreal? Like We've already talked about Max Pacioretty's disappointing season a couple shows back. He actually had an even worse decrease than Jonathan Druin from two seasons ago. A 30% point per game decrease for Max Pacioretty from two seasons ago to last season. I recall you concluded in our conversation about Max Pax that we should expect a bounce back for next year. Do you think this changes anything or do you kind of feel the same way? Like, is this in the end not that big of a change for other Montreal players. Like I'd imagine if anything, Max Domi is more of a playmaker. So maybe that should help some other players get some more goals. There'll be more shots to go around for guys like Pacioretty and Gallagher. So if you're in a league that counts shots, maybe it's good for them to have Galchenyuk out of the picture. I don't know. Maybe I'm just blowing smoke here, but like I'm trying to, is there any effect on Montreal players? Do you think because they now traded Galchenyuk for Domi? If there's any chemistry bonus from having two guys named Max working together, maybe that'll help Pacioretty. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not sure. Like, maybe it's a good thing for Pacioretty. Like you said, Elon, a setup man could really help him. But I don't think it significantly changes his situation as a player that we hope will bounce back, but still are a little wary of seeing just uh, how much he has in the tank at this point. Yeah, well, hey, when we do our audio fantasy guide, if slash when we do that in August, then we'll give an exact number for what we think Max Domi is going to do. I'm imagining around 50 points is probably the reasonable conservative 
you know, projection and then like you can say upside for 55 if everything goes really well. But it's hard to imagine things will go especially well. But I know Matthew is dying here in the chat room with us just uh, not having anything positive to say about the Habs. So how about I'll do you a favor, Matthew, and just not talk about them anymore. Okay, let's talk about the Arizona Coyotes. In comes Alex Galchenyuk, who's likely coming in as a top sixer. Who knows if he's going to play center or wing at this point. But regardless, Brian, you've been a Galchenyuk backer for a while now, and you've always claimed that you didn't think he was used properly by the Habs. He broke out in 2015-16, scoring 30 goals and 56 points in 72 games. But things went down from there for the past two seasons, and he only managed 51 points last year, barely hanging on to fantasy relevance in most formats. Now when we're projecting Galchenyuk for next year, I feel like it's hard not to be tempted into just imagining him taking Richard Panic's spot from the end of last season on the top line in power play with Derek Stepan and Clayton Keller. That just seems like such a, like a beautiful spot for him to be in. And if that happens, and I know it's a big if, it's still early, like in training camp, maybe we'll get more information about where exactly Galchenyuk will be lining up for the team. But let's say if he's a top line, top power play guy, is his fantasy value clearly upgraded over what it was with the Habs? I mean, actually, I don't even need to ask. I know that it is, but like how much higher can he go? Like I could see myself projecting Alex Galchenyuk right now at like 60 points and maybe upside for more even, but let me know if I'm getting ahead of myself and expecting him to be even on that line. Like Richard Panic actually did really well on that top line. So I wouldn't be surprised if he gets another shot there, if he's still with the team. But yeah, I don't know. I'm excited about this. I just feel like Galchenyuk could score a lot of goals. And I think that Derek Stepan and Clayton Keller will be very helpful to him achieving his potential. I love your enthusiasm for Alex Galchenyuk on a new team. Elon, we love Alex Galchenyuk. We've talked him up for years now as being someone who could break out, who should break out of Montreal given the opportunity. And of course it didn't happen. So moving to Arizona definitely seems like a better situation for him where we can sort of get that talk going again. The Habs made no secret of their contempt for him all through last season or in the days following trading him. I'm not sure like you're excited about him maybe getting on the top line in panic spot though. I'm not sure that's where Galchenyuk ends up. Arizona, like Montreal, is also hurting hard for center depth, uh, except unlike Montreal, they just acquired a center instead of trading one away. And Galchenyuk may be a useful guy to be using as your second line center, which from what I've read seems to be the team's intention with this move rather than keeping Galchenyuk unhappily stuck in a winger role. So the question is then, who the heck is Galchenyuk going to play with if Stepan and Keller are up together on the top line? The next best Coyotes wingers are probably like Christian Fisher and Brendan Perlini. So expecting 60 or more points from Galchenyuk, if those guys end up being the, the peak of his winger quality, uh, 60 or more points sounds like a little rich, but of course, top power play time is definitely going to help Galchenyuk get part of the way there. And a lot of us are waiting to see what else Arizona can do to upgrade their forward group or defense or anything this summer. They have a cap space to do it. So we'll see what happens. And we'll, of course, we'll keep you posted when they do. Yeah, well, the Arizona Coyotes actually did another thing, which is obviously good for the team. They signed Oliver ekvin Larson to a huge eight-year contract extension. So he's locked in and he's a good player. Like, I guess we've just been waiting for so long for Arizona to be good. We finally got a taste of it at the end of last season when they went on this amazing run, helped a lot, of course, by... Antti Ranta and his like superb save percentage. I think it was like in the 940s for that last month of the season. He ended the season with like a 930. And we'll actually talk about him in a bit also. Sorry for all the teasing, everyone. But we got a whole big fun show planned here. But yeah, Arizona just looks like it's got to happen soon. Now that they actually showed us they could, that they could win some games. And now they get Alex Galchenyuk in. I just feel like next year could be the year. Maybe you're right. The 60 points is probably the upside for Galchenyuk. But I could see 
him hovering around there. But yeah, like you say, it depends who he plays with and we'll have to follow along during the preseason and see how that's shaking out. Anyone else on the Coyotes you want to talk about before we dig into this Oliver ekman Larson contract extension? Like, I guess if you're saying that Galchenyuk comes in and plays center for the second line, that's probably good for whoever his wingers are because we saw Dylan Strome kind of struggle there. Maybe like Christian Dvorak, though. He was doing pretty well. So I guess uh, right now I, I'm leaning on I'm not seeing much impact for Arizona players overall, aside from just everyone being a year older, like Clayton Keller not being a rookie anymore, and maybe even improving over his already great rookie season. So I just feel like there's there's lots of room for growth for a lot of Arizona Coyotes, including Oliver ekman Larson. Was there anything specific with Galchenik that you wanted to bring up? No, I think I covered it. Okay, great. Well, in that case, let's talk about Oliver ekman Larson, who we've had a trouble pegging this guy for the last few seasons. He's 26 now. He signed an eight-year contract extension worth $8.25 million per year. So this guy is in the money. But let's talk about if he's going to be money for you for your fantasy team. He's going to remain a Coyote now for the rest of his prime. And last year was like a very interesting year for ekman Larson. He had 23 points in 50 games before the All-Star break for a sad 38-point pace. Everyone who drafted him just was asking themselves, why did I make this terrible choice? Why did the Keeping Carlson guys tell me that we should expect him to maybe be a little better from his disappointing year before? But you know what? He actually ended the year pretty strong. He ended with 19 points in 32 games, which is a 49-point pace, which would be great, right? That's like more than what we were projecting. I recall going into the season, we thought he'd be like a 45-point guy. He ended up with 42 in 82 games. So now we go into next year. I feel like we shouldn't expect him to have like a really slow start and then a really decent end. Like, let's just assume that he's going to be a consistent good player. Maybe you'll tell me that there's no reason to assume that. But I feel like there's obviously upside for more with OEL. Like, first of all, he had 55 points in 75 games two seasons ago. And I know you talked about how you thought that was a bit of an aberration. Maybe that's too much to expect. On the other hand, and I know I always say this and I always get caught with this, but Arizona has all this young talent coming up. So you'd expect that should help OEL to increase his sort of ceiling of 45, which we've sort of landed at at the last little while. So Brian, now that we've got OEL locked in as the clear top guy, we've got Clayton Keller and other young prospects with another year of experience. We've got Alex Galchenyuk in the picture. Are you expecting Oliver Ekman Larson to be able to approach his 55-point career season high again next year? Or do you think we should be happy for anything over 45 and expecting more than that would be too much? So you just offered a brief history of Oliver Ekman Larson. I'd like to offer another short history of Oliver Ekman Larson, both in the NHL and on the Keeping Carlson podcast. So we'd always loved Ekman Larson for his shot rates, elite, elite that way, and both the number of shots he attempted and the number of shots that actually got on net, both at even strength and on the power play. He'd generally been pointing in the mid-40s, but broke out with that huge 55-point season you mentioned in 2015-16, which I said at the time I was confident he would not repeat and that he's much more likely to be a 45- to 50-point guy than a 50-plus point guy. And then in 2016-17, we never really got the answer to that question about whether he could follow up 55 points with another 55 points because Ekman Larson's shot rates turned to dust which was likely the result of a hand injury that he'd been fighting through all year long and shared with the group at the end of the season once it was already over and we'd already been exploring every other possible explanation for where his shots went. So it was probably that hand injury. And so last year, in 2017-18, there was one big question. Could a healthy Oliver ekman Larson reclaim his elite defensive shot rates and get back above 50 points? So I was bullish on the former I thought he'd be able to get back those elite defensive shot rates and bearish on the ladder thinking that, no, he can't get back above 50. 
And I was close to being right on both counts. He ended up with 42 points, so I was right there. But I also didn't quite get it right in saying that he would get back up to his previous high watermarks and shot rates. Uh, also last year around Ekman Larson, to, to build on that line of thinking, there was a smaller question that we asked on this very podcast, episode number 155, check the tape, it's there. We asked about Oliver Ekman Larson's shot rates, not just thinking it was his hand, but we asked if there was a systemic shift happening in how Arizona set up their offense that could adversely impact even a healthy Oliver Ekman Larson shot rates. We'd noticed that the Coyotes had moved a sizable chunk of their shot volume away from the blue line in 2016-17. That was the year OEL had the hand injury and wondered aloud if this was a one-off or a trend to come. And Elon looking at the Coyotes' heat map showing where they shot from most often last year and comparing those to Oliver Ekman Larson's golden years of shooting rates, we've now got two years in a row where the Arizona Coyotes have shifted away from just bombing away from the blue line, both at even strength and on the power play. So perhaps this is the reason why Oliver Ekman Larson's shot rates did not quite bounce back up to the high watermarks from his 13, 14, and 14, 15 seasons because his role in Arizona's offensive system has changed. So re, 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 rewind and go what, back to the original question you asked, is Ekman Larson a 55-plus point guy? Still going with a pretty decisive no on that one. I still see Ekman Larson as a 45-point guy who takes a good chunk of shots and then anything you get on top of that 45 points is a bonus. But, Elon, I have an even hotter take for you. I think it's time for Oliver Ekman Larson to reprove himself as an elite shot taker, given what I just shared about the shift in Arizona's setup. Ekman Larson last season was ranked outside the top 10 in defensemen, even strength shots on goal, like total counts, not shot rates. And he was outside the top 20 in defensemen power play shots on goal. Ekman Larson's rate stats also not at all showing elite, 27th in even strength shots per 60 minutes, 44th in power play shots per 60 minutes. And like, I know it's exciting that talent around him is finally showing up in Arizona and that puts him in a better position, but that might just make it a wash with his lessened role as a blue line cannon. I just don't know that those elite numbers are an automatic. If you still have Ekman Larson higher on your list because you're counting on massive elite shot rates, you might want to rethink that going into this year's draft. Wow. Okay. Really great analysis. That's very interesting how last year he continued to not be taking as many shots and like the offense overall was not letting defensemen take as many shots. And I was curious just now as you were talking to check, cause you know how I said at the start of the season for the first 50 games before the all-star break, he had less than a half point per game pace and he improved on that in the second half, but actually his shot rate stayed the same in both uh, instances. He had 125 shots in 50 games before the All-Star break, 77 shots in 32 games after the All-Star break, which is both of them around a two and a half shots per game pace, which is like good for defensemen, but not what Oliver Ekman Larson used to do. So I guess uh, I have to be with you. Like, I guess you could hope that he can be closer to like 45 and like approaching 50 if he like could do what he did at the end of last season. But it's really hard to expect him to go back to that 55 points like watermark that he set a few years ago back when he was shooting so much more. So Brian, thank you very much. And I guess that's it for our Arizona talk now. Yeah. Just to clarify, even if he was shooting equally to as he was in the 15, 16 season, still not a 55 point player. I'm really drawing my line in the sand there. Wow. Well, it'll be fun to see if you're wrong and, or if you're right, I guess you'll probably be right. But of course, if you're right, right. we we have a whole season where we saw him be a 42 point player and healthy. 
but we didn't exactly see a full. That's the thing that like gets to me is we saw half a season of him being a 38 point player. And then like a third of a season of him being a 50 point player. Yeah. So, and we saw 20 games of Antti Niemi being an elite NHL goalie. Yeah. So we'll what talk- does that mean? I guess you're right. You're, Brian, you're probably right. Of course. And the way things go with hockey media is if you're right, we will probably not mention it. Or no, it's the opposite of hockey media, right? If you're right, then we probably won't mention it. We'll just be like, oh, ho-hum. I'll recognize this is what we thought. And if you're wrong, then I'll bring it up. And be like, Brian, why did we get it wrong? Oh, my God. And then we'll all look dumb. So we, we can't win, but hopefully Oliver Ekman Lars will at least be able to be above a 40-point guy for next year. You'd hope for that. I mean, they're locking him in as their top power play defense. They're not paying him $8.25 million to not be involved in the offense. So, but yeah, like you say, they might have a systemic shift and we shall see. And you brought up Antony Emmy, and I know I promised Matthew that we'd end Habs talk, but here, here's actually some nice Habs talk that we could end with. Since we're covering all of the news from the past few weeks, Antony Emmy actually re-signed with the Habs for next year, 950000 So I guess it's still possible that the Habs end up choosing Charlie Lindgren as their backup goalie, but I think Antony Emmy is probably the guy since they just signed him for a million bucks. And I think it's crazy because like at the start of last season, Antony Emmy was so, so bad. He was unable to put up a 900 save percentage game like with Pittsburgh or with, then he got sent to Florida and he sucked there. I assumed he was done. Then he goes to Montreal for some reason. Well, I guess for the reason that Carey Price was injured and he was fantastic. He put up a 929 save percentage and went seven, five and four in 19 games. A 929 save percentage for Anthony Niemi. I thought he was the guy in fantasy last year where whenever he played, you should sign up for a daily fantasy matchup and stack all the players on the other team playing because you're guaranteed there's going to be a ton of goals. But actually, Anthony Niemi was just fantastic for the halves at the end of the year. And now he gets a chance to show if he still has it in him. Obviously, Carey Price will see the majority of the net next year for as long as he stays healthy. But is it possible, Brian, that Anthony Emmy isn't the obvious stack the other team on FanDuel guy whenever he plays like I thought he was? Like, is Does Anthony Emmy have anything left or is he just going to be a total disaster next year and he was lucky to have these good 19 games? This is not going to be a Devin Dubnik-like reviving career tour where he went and failed miserably with a couple teams, was just about done, and then found magic and is a legitimate NHL goalie again. Well, the first reason that it's not going to be that way for Antiniemi is because he's uh, significantly older. He's going to be 35 years old next year. If he wasn't, I might be a little more open to the idea. Antiniemi actually ended last season with a positive delta save percentage, which means that he stopped a higher percentage of shots than you would have expected an average NHL goalie to stop given the same sampling of shots faced. You can find that set over at Corsica.hockey if you're interested in learning more. And and by that measure, by delta save percentage, uh, Antiniemi actually had the best season of his career. The only other time that Niemi has put up a semi-notable delta save percentage was in his first year with San Jose back in 2010-2011. So, you know, good for him. I'm still just not sure I have a whole lot of faith in him. Uh, his career was on life support. He's 35 years old. And then he had a fantastic 15-game sample. He also plays for the Montreal Canadiens, which is a, a challenge for any goalie in the league. Yeah, well, it was a challenge for the best goalie in the league, as we thought he was last year in Carey Price. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like if I went to a game in Montreal and then it turned out that Antiemi was playing, I would be pretty disappointed. But you know what? I wouldn't be disappointed, at least, because I will have known that he's got a good price for my ticket because I got it with our friends and sponsor for this week's episode, which is our 
good friends. I already said they're our friends. I'll say it twice. You know, they've never told us that we are their friends, but I still think that they're our friends at the very least. I'm talking about SeatGeek, okay? Let me just get to it. You go there to buy tickets. That's the site, and it's a really good site for that. You know, buying tickets, it can be complicated. It can be confusing, but with SeatGeek, you, you download the app. You take a look at what's going on. You can search for what you want, or you can just browse for what's going on in your area. Do you know there's a Harry Potter parody play going on in Toronto? I, have, I had friends come over this weekend just to go see this play. They said it was great. You probably get cheap tickets over on SeatGeek, and it's just a really easy app to use. Their prices are fully guaranteed. You can sort by value. So if you want to just get a good deal, you're not necessarily interested in the cheapest ticket, but you just want to make sure you're not getting ripped off, you can sort by value. I really like that feature. Plus, even if you think the prices are good, why not even get a little bit of a cheaper price? You can because you're listening to the podcast. Brian, tell us how. Yeah, it's magic. Our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you need to do is download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code keeping today. Elon, you've done it. I've done it. Several people have told us they've done it. And really, uh, it's easy. It's no problem. All you need to do is enter the promo code KEEPING for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Be a geek, buy a seat. Okay, we were talking about a backup goalie in Anthony Emmys. Let's talk about another backup goalie, or maybe not even a backup goalie next year, but I am told you I, I want to cover everything. Peter Budai got traded from Tampa back to the Kings for Andy Andreoff. And let's not get too deep into Andy Andreoff going to the Tampa Bay Lightning. But Peter Budai, he wasn't great last year in Tampa. He was the backup for Vasilevsky. He played in a few games, and he had three wins in eight games and an 876 save percentage. So he was terrible. But it was only a couple seasons ago that Budai put up a very respectable 917 save percentage on the Kings in 53 games while Jonathan Quick was injured. And then he got moved at the trade deadline. It was like, thank you, Budai, for saving us. Now, goodbye. Hopefully, you can give us a decent return. And, and it didn't work out well for the Kings. It didn't work out well for Budai. Now they've decided, let's give it another chance. They bring Budai back, though. I did see on Roto World that even though they made this trade, they're expecting Budai to go to the AHL and for Jack Campbell to be the backup. So maybe they just have Budai there in case there's another Jonathan Quick injury and they don't want to only have Jack Campbell available. So overall, Brian, let's just talk LA Kings backup goalie. Like, is Jack Campbell, by the way, good? He actually had a decent season last year. He had a 924 save percentage. He only played five games, though. Uh, he had a 912 save percentage in 26 AHL games. So I'm guessing you're going to say he's not that great. But some people are in super deep leagues where even backup goalies get rostered. And when we do Schmore Goaliesborg every year, where we put goalies into tiers, you always have a list at the end of goalies who are backups, but you think can either challenge or you think might be good when they do play. Does Jack Campbell fall into that category or Peter Budai? Like, what do you think about these guys? I don't think uh, a whole lot about either guy. I don't know who between Jack Campbell and Peter Budai is going to be the backup. I imagine it's going to be a training camp decision. Maybe this is a little way to get a, some intra-organization competition for the job going or to just, I don't know, to welcome Peter Budai back for the great stretch that he gave them. And then, again, obviously, like, we knew... Uh, when he had that stretch, I was a skeptic the whole way through. And yeah, I had, uh, I had my, my bum handed to me for the entire duration of it. But I, we can see that it was not Peter Budai's uh, renaissance of his career. It wasn't coming back. I also don't know that if we're trying to figure out who is going to be the backup between Campbell and Budai, I don't think there's like a, anyone who thinks there's a player development factor in this decision uh, might be forgetting just how much Jack Campbell has already been through. Uh, like the Kings aren't likely to be hoping that another year of Jack Campbell applying his trade in the AHL where he's never really made a great impression makes him any more likely to be helpful to their NHL club. I, it doesn't mean I wouldn't enjoy seeing Jack Campbell finally get a shot. 
think he's just 26. So there's time, right? We've seen goalies round into form by 29 or 30. But I think in whatever action they've seen before this, they fared a little bit better than Jack Campbell has. Right. So don't draft Jack Campbell. Maybe remember his name in case you want a spot start. And obviously remember his name in case Jonathan Quick gets injured again. But obviously everyone's just hoping that Quick will be healthy. And then Brian will finally be able to see if you were right or wrong from our argument at the end of last season where I'm saying Jonathan Quick is really great. I'd rather have him than Carey Price. And you said you're crazy. And let's definitely not get into that. Though, Matthew, I'm so sorry. I know I said that we're going to stop talking about the halves. Already two half discussions ago. But I forgot. We have this conversation I wanted to bring up that involves Shea Weber. So one more thing involving the halves and actually the Arizona Coyotes. We had a patron Bradley asked on our Facebook group about a trade and I thought it was just a really interesting conversation I wanted to have it on the show so Brian and I could share our thoughts the trade was in a multi-cat keeper league and it was between Morgan Riley and Antti Ranta traded for Shea Weber and Cam Talbot so again Morgan Riley and Ranta for Weber and Talbot in a multi-cat keeper league I'm assuming multi-cat means hits and blocks are counted at the very least bangers and mash league as some of us say so let's talk this one through we have Morgan Riley who had a career year last year with the Leafs he put up 52 points in 76 games not that many hits or blocks though so for fantasy he's not as valuable as someone like uh, Shea Weber who gives you a ton of hits and blocks though Weber doesn't put up as many points or at least it's been a long time since he's put up more than like 50 points like Morgan Riley did. Weber only had 42 points in his first season with the Habs and then he got injured last year after 26 games. So it is worth noting in his 26 games that he played, he had 16 points, which would be a 50 point pace. So maybe Weber can be close to Morgan Riley in points. Obviously, Brian, I'd be curious to know if you think Morgan Riley will decrease in the number of points he got. But I feel like Shea Weber, even if he only gets 40, 45, the fact that he's such a beast in bangers and mash formats with all those hits and all of those blocks, even if he's only a 40 to 45 point guy, he also takes a bunch of shots. He gets a lot of power play points or a decent amount. Anyways, I feel like he's more valuable than Morgan Riley. So that's why I had Weber over Riley. And then also we have Cam Talbot versus Antti Ranta, which is a very interesting conversation. And Brian, I don't know. Do you want me to like stop and let you talk about the defenseman before we get to the goalies? Or should I just like do my whole ramble? No, I think what you said makes a lot of sense in a multi-category league. Shea Weber still carries more value than Morgan Riley. Of course, it's a keeper league, which makes it a little more complicated because Morgan Riley is a lot younger than Shea Weber. But I'm always of the thought that if you're trying to win next year, which hopefully you are, then just worry about next year and then the following year. There'll be some other defensemen that you can draft or trade for. Obviously, it depends a little bit on how deep this league actually is. But yeah, I would say Weber is better than Riley in a multi-cat league. And then talk about the goalies. This is really interesting, right? We all know how amazing Ranta was last year when he finally got healthy. Arizona was nearly unbeatable down the stretch. Ranta put up a 930 save percentage overall on the season. Talbot, meanwhile, was a disaster. He only won 31 games out of the 67 he played, and he had a 908 save percentage. Everyone drafted Talbot last year thinking he was going to be a rock because the season before, he played a ton of games, 73 games, and he won 42 of them. He had a 919 save percentage, but... When you think about it, even Talbot at his best, which was a couple seasons ago, just a 919 save percentage compared to Auntie Ranta last year who had a 930. So it seems obviously a very small sample size. Last year was the first year that Ranta's been a starter in the NHL. He didn't even play the full season because he had injury trouble. But Ranta was able to put up a 930 save percentage while Talbot in his best year was only a 919. But when you take a look at the teams, you know, Edmonton, you would hope, is going to get more wins than Arizona. I know that a lot of people are really excited about the Coyotes and maybe a little down on the Oilers, but one team has Connor McDavid and also has made to the playoffs just a couple of years ago. I don't know. So that one I think is really interesting. So, Brian, what do you think between Talbot and Ranta for who you'd rather have next year, even forgetting about the keeper implications just for next year? I would prefer Cam Talbot 
only because Edmonton has a shorter road to success. And sure, even though they have the shorter road, it doesn't mean that the Oilers won't take the scenic route or, well, the most unscenic route possible, but you get what I'm saying. If things are normal, quote-unquote, this year for both Edmonton and Arizona, I see Edmonton having more wins in their pocket, and that's the determining factor for me between the two guys. I don't feel confident in saying that the difference in their save percentage is going to be great enough to justify taking Antiranta instead, who is going to, I think, have fewer wins if the season started tomorrow. I'm also somewhat generally ambivalent towards Arizona. There's so many question marks there still, even though it's exciting, so many unknowns to their future and especially to their immediate future and their progress, the Coyotes' progress through the second half of the season that we lauded them for and we celebrated them for. It was not exactly linear. So while they did get better, there were still peaks and valleys happening, and I'm not sure exactly how that's going to translate into, say, the first 40 games next year. So the Coyotes seem to just be in more unknown territory than the Oilers, and clearly you can tell I'm picking by team here rather than by goalie. The best case here would be if Antti Ranta played for Edmonton, then that would be a (laughs) no-brainer. Well, yeah, and also the thing with goalies is they're so hard to predict. You can have a great save percentage one year. Like I said, Talbot added 919 two seasons ago, 908 last season. So who knows if Antti Ranta is now going to go into a slump and end up with a low save percentage. Obviously, right now, we're expecting Ranta to be better. But I, I agree with you, Brian. I'd rather just go for the wins. In a keeper league, if I'm only thinking about the long term, maybe there's an argument to be made for Ranta and Morgan Riley. But yeah, for next year, I would definitely go with Weber and Talbot. Brian, what do you think, by the way, about Morgan Riley? He had 52 points last year. Is he going to repeat that? So here's the thing with Morgan Riley. There's not a lot of reason to think he can't repeat it. Uh, He was really impressive offensively in a lot of ways in Toronto last season. Part of that was a function of Riley gaining some trust and deployment that he had not previously enjoyed. For example, Riley saw double the amount of power play time in 17-18 compared to 16-17. And that, of course, was a big help for him getting all the way up to 52 points. Another part of Riley's big offensive season was having some of the more variable numbers slanting his way. Riley saw sizable bumps in IPP and on-ice shooting percentage at even strength. If he holds to be a legit offensive threat, then it's possible he doesn't see so much regression in those numbers, and that means it won't take him so far away from 50 points. Uh, But unless something else changes or Riley takes another big step forward, I'm not ready to anoint him as being someone to absolutely be relying on for more than 50 points. I even still feel like Riley's spot on the top power play is kind of tenuous, to be honest. It wasn't so long ago that he couldn't get on there, even though he seemed like the team's most talented power play quarterback. And the Leafs still have other options like Jake Gardner still getting into the mix every so often. Yeah, well, Ted just asked in the chat room here, is Riley truly the power play quarterback above Gardner? I guess that's obviously a big question. You're saying even if he is, 50 points might be tough. And that just makes me even more interested in having Shea Weber just because of all those hits and blocks. Like Weber is going to be a good guy, by the way, I think to draft in leagues next year because he was injured last year and the halves are the halves. And I feel like he's going to fall and... Even though he only had 42 points the year before, he was still super valuable and ranked very high in a lot of formats that counted hits and blocks. So don't forget about Shea Weber. See if you could get him at a discount next year. Okay, Brian, we have another big signing that we haven't gotten around to talking about yet. This actually happened like a month ago, but we talked about it, I think, on a Patreon cast, but never on a podcast proper. And we also had a big debate about it on our Facebook group. But I'm talking about Evander Kane's huge seven-year million contract with the Sharks. So $7 million a year for the next seven years. You and many patrons came out saying you think this is a terrible move for the Sharks. And you were like, 
pretty sure about it. I, and so maybe before we get into the fantasy impact here, care to share just in general, like why you were so against this trade for San Jose? Not saying I disagree with you, but just share with the group, share with the class. Okay, yeah. So the Sharks signing Evander Kane, it's at seven years, $7 million, is a pretty bold bet to place on a guy whose career high is 57 points, has some injury history, is exiting his prime, and has been shown the door from two franchises already. Now, it's possible on that last point that that reflects more on those franchises than it does on him. But economically speaking, you'd think it would have some impact on lowering his value from needing to lock him down for long-term at a pretty high number. There are plenty of positives to Evander Kane's game, but given the rest of the reasons I just mentioned, I don't quite see why the Sharks wouldn't go more of like a Radulov route where you throw $5 million at him, give him a year to prove himself, see what he does, and then figure out what he's worth to you. Because I can't imagine after that year, the Sharks end up having to offer much more than $7 million over seven years at that point. It just felt like the team afforded Kane more leverage than he actually had. This is a deal you dole out to a guy you're certain can help you, not a guy who just showed up, played well for a couple months, and hasn't done much else to be so deserving. Also, what does this mean for for the bigger picture for San Jose? Look at Couture and Pavelski. Both are on deals that expire at the end of this upcoming season. And San Jose now, with Kane signed, has $28 million, or nearly 40% of their cap, tied up long-term in Evander Kane, Brent Burns, Mark-Edward Vlasic, and Martin Jones. And you have to think Couture and Pavelski are in line to get paid more than Kane on their next deal, right? Or maybe not Pavelski, Couture for sure. All that said, like I I do still kind of see it, playing my own devil's advocate uh, from San Jose's perspective, where, look, if they don't lock up Evander Kane, who else are they going to get instead? There aren't a ton of trade or free agency options with the same upside that would be less of a cost to acquire. So this is a swing that maybe the Sharks felt they needed to take given their general lack of robustness on the wing for so many years, but it's still a risky play. Okay, yeah, I could hear you on that. And definitely I see where you're coming from in terms of the strategic point where like maybe try to get him for cheaper. Though, of course, Evander Kane might have said like, give me seven years, seven million or I'm going somewhere else. Maybe there was someone else that was willing to give him that money. And for the Sharks, at the end of the day, you're still getting a top line guy, right? Those types of players don't grow on trees. Obviously, there's an injury concern and obviously there's the concern about like, I don't know, whatever. He's had some some rough years and like you said, he was shown the door by other teams and we don't know exactly why. Maybe Vander Kane is like older, more mature, whatever. Like any of those issues will be gone for now. So, I, I can see why the Sharks did it. And let's talk now about Evander Kane. Like, I, what I wrote on the Facebook group was just like, I feel like it was like probably they spent a little much and they probably did it for uh, a few too many years. But hopefully he'll be like a useful top line, top power play guy for them. And like you say, they have a lot of money already wrapped up on some other players, but at least they're good players. It's not like some of these other teams like the Detroit Red Wings that have millions and millions of dollars on people who could barely make the roster. Like you said, Brent Burns and Mark Edward Vlasic and Martin Jones and now Evander Kane. Like, could be, could be worse, but I definitely get what you're saying. So let's talk about the fantasy impact here. Kane has always been such a tough guy to pin down in fantasy. We all know he's an elite level shots on goal provider, but he's never scored more than 30 goals. And he did that already a long time ago, in 2011, 2012 with the Jets. And of course, he was on pace to beat 30 goals a couple of times with Buffalo, but he missed too much time due to injury. 
like to ever get a chance, like almost every season, or I think every season. He hasn't played a full season until last year, where finally he played, I think, 78 games. And that was the most games he's played in a really long time. So I think that's one big concern with Evander Kane. Like from a fantasy standpoint, even forgetting about the San Jose Sharks, if I want to draft him, I'm still kind of concerned that he could end up missing a lot of time. We've already talked about a bunch of other players, like Alex Barkov and like a few others on a, on a recent episode, saying that, like, does it mean now that they finally had a full healthy season that we can forget about their injury history? I feel like with someone like Evander Kane, I'd be even more concerned just because it's been so many injuries over the years. But hey, if he's healthy, last season, he put up 34 points in 38 games to start the year with the Sabres. Like it was an amazing start to the year, but then he really fell off. He only had two points in 12 games in January and then six points in 12 games in February. It looked like, oh my God, it's happening again. Everyone probably like traded for Evander Kane or were super excited for him, could have traded him, but held on. They were kicking themselves when he pretty much fell into obscurity. The Sabres were burying him, took him off the top power play, weren't giving him great line mates. But then he gets traded to the Sharks and he put up 14 points in 17 games. And that's like very good. It's close to a point per game. None of those 14 points were even on the power play, even though he was getting top unit deployments. You'd expect him to even be able to do better than that, at least in terms of get some power play points. Obviously, you could tell us if maybe some of those 14 points in 17 games were unsustainable. It's such a small sample size. Maybe it's not even worth digging into too much. But like with all of that said, now that I've just rambled and rambled about what Evander Kane did last year and for the last few seasons, what do you think moving forward? Like, is, is, are his 78 games that he played last year enough to make you not afraid of drafting him and having him get injured? Or would that still be a concern with you? And in terms of production, what do you think he can do? Like, can he eclipse his 30-goal high for a career in goals for a season? Like, I feel like probably he can, right, if he's healthy, especially if the Sharks sign Joe Thornton and he's still got some passing ability. Like, I feel like you'd have to expect that if he can stay healthy, this will be the year that Evander Kane can finally reach the potential that he's had for so long, just because we're imagining that he's probably going to be on the top line and top power play with Pavelski and Thornton on the top line. And then like Couture also on the top power play. Okay. What do you think? Am I expecting too much here? Maybe, maybe I would love if Evander Kane met the expectations that you are setting for him. First, I'll answer your injury question about whether we can breathe easy. Now, of course, It's nicer to see Evander Kane coming off a year where he played a career-high number of games. His previous career high was 74 games played, though also give him some credit. He played 100% of the 48 games in the lockout-shortened season. Uh, He's missed 33 games over the last three years. It's not the best. It's also not the worst. I'm not ready. Like, I'm I'm not an injury predictor. I don't know what to make of his injury history. It's enough to be concerned, I suppose, but not enough to think he's guaranteed to miss more than five games or something. Again, it's nicer for Evander Kane to be coming off of a season where he played all the games versus a season where he played half the games. As for what you can expect from him production-wise, I imagine he's going to be given every opportunity to produce, not just because the Sharks invested in him, but because they're going to need Evander Kane to produce. One thing we'll be watching is to see where his shooting percentage leads him. Uh, His great start in San Jose came with a 13% shooting success rate more than double what he'd been shooting in Buffalo for the first 61 games of the year. And there was an interesting theme in his shooting percentage numbers. Evander Kane in Winnipeg uh, was a D- or slash Atlanta was a pretty okay shooter. Uh, and then in Buffalo, he crashed. And then in San Jose, over 17 regular season games, he popped back up again. So maybe, like, we've talked a lot about his troubles with shooting percentage. Maybe it was more a team thing. Like, that's something that I'm 
hopeful will get teased out and that we'll get to see Evander Kane succeed and have like a 10% shooting percentage and keep tossing shots on net. Uh, You also need to be wary though that thinking so many shots on goal is going to equal so many goals to come uh, forwards with Evander Kane. So Evander Kane was in the top five in even strength shots per 60 minutes last season. The other forwards rounding out the top five were Brandon Gallagher, Victor Arvidsson, Jeff Skinner, and Tyler Toffoli. No one's tripping over themselves to make big bets on those guys. They're all great value picks if you get them in the right round with the right pick, but like they're not must drafts for a lot of people out there. Anyway, at this point, we're, we're looking at a huge range for what we might expect from Evander Kane. So let's just go with the usual Evander Kane numbers, which are like somewhere between, I don't know, 50 and hopefully he can get up to 60 points with a new prominent role in San Jose. And of course, he has that ever-present upside to creep above 60 if Evander Kane gets positive deployment and friendly shooting percentages. Yeah, like, I mean, the guys you said, you're right, no one's tripping over themselves, I guess. But like, someone like Victor Arvidsson, I see him as like a 35-goal, potentially 65-point guy. And I kind of feel like that's Evander Kane. Like, that's what he could do next year. Obviously, things will have to go right. But like you said, they'll give him the opportunity. Maybe I'm being too optimistic overall this episode because I was also very excited about Galchenyuk and then you kind of brought me down there. But I think when we do our first ever in the history of the world fantasy hockey audio guide in August, if slash when we do it, if you guys want to support us, keepingcarlson.com slash guide to sign up for that and help make it happen. Anyways, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. I feel like I might fight you on that one. We we still haven't come up with how we're going to handle our discrepancies if we disagree on a projection. I guess we could go with the average or we could just put them both into the spreadsheet. But I'm... I'm thinking like 65 points for Evander Kane is like a reasonable thing to expect. Maybe that's high, but uh, you know, like I just feel like finally he will be in a position to succeed. And on San Jose, he was also doing so well next year, last year. Like I don't know what happened in January and February, but it was looking so good for him at the start. When he's playing with good players, he can do well. So if he stays healthy, I don't know. I'd see 35 goals in him, 65 points. But okay, now we have Kane there. What does it mean for someone like Joe Pavelski? He's been declining for the past few seasons. He had 78 points in 2015-16, which was great. But then he fell 10 points to 68 points in 2016-17, and then down again to 66 last year. Do you think that Evander Kane's presence could help Joe Pavelski get back to being a 70-pointer, or do you see him continuing to regress and go below 65, or do you think maybe he'll stay stable at around 65 points? Joe Pavelski's been a super valuable guy in fantasy for a few years now, especially with the dual position eligibility. But now, going into next year, what do you think? is where you'd peg him. Like if I, I have Evander Kane at 65 points right now, at least you said closer to 60, maybe even closer to 55. What does that mean for a Joe Pavelski who's a year older and has been declining? Can the decline stop? Yeah, that's the whole thing, right? Joe Pavelski entering his age 34 season in a pattern of expected decline, not like all of a sudden he's garbage. It's just, yeah, he's entering his age 34 season. Nothing drastic happening, but Pavelski's numbers are just moving in the direction that you'd expect being chipped away with every season as he gets older. Pavelski did have less luck with his team's shooting percentage while he was on the ice last season, so there is some room for a little bit of bounce back there. And we spent much of last year lamenting how there was not a great third piece for Pavelski and Thornton to play with, and like Joe Thornton, not necessarily being a spring chicken either. So Pavelski, having Kane by his side, could be a really great thing. Uh, In a small sample from last year, 
Joe Pavelski with Vander Kane together, they saw more even strength shot attempts per 60 minutes than any other Pavelski winger combination, aside from Eunice Donskoy, with whom Joe Pavelski produced pretty much the same numbers as he did with Vander Kane. So yeah, hopefully Vander Kane is going to be able to help inject a little more offensive potential into Pavelski's season. Okay, so yeah, and we'll discuss him in our audio guide and we'll come up with an actual projection. Brian, do you want to throw out a number right now for Pavelski for next year if you had to give him one? No. You're not going to give him one? Uh, okay, I'll give yeah. him one. He okay, had 66 no. points last year, 68 points the year before that. Yeah, so I'm going to go, I think he can hold steady. I think uh, 70 would be really, really wonderful. I think high 60s is reasonable. Okay, that's fair. And now a couple more odds and ends before we clear out the show. So. We actually had a really good tweet. So back, uh, now we're talking like three episodes ago, I think, so a couple months ago, we were talking about some season-ending coaching changes, and we talked about how the Carolina Hurricanes hired Rod Brindamore, and we were discussing, oh, what does that mean for different Carolina players? And you rightly pointed out that probably isn't worth talking about too many Carolina players because they've said that they're going to be like trading potentially all the players. Like I said, everyone is up for grabs except for, I think, Sebastian Ajo. So whatever, let's not talk about that. But you made a comment that in general, you don't think that coaches have that much of an impact on player production aside from obviously who gets to play with who, like who's on the power play. So that's an obvious impact. But you meant in terms of like the system that they set out, that's not going to make a huge difference in how many points a player gives you. And then we got a tweet from at bad horse underscore asking regarding the coaching changes not having impact from the latest episode. What about John Stevens in the Kings? He definitely ignited Kopitar and Brown this season, at least. And so that was a very good question. And Brian, we had an interesting discussion about it. So let's bring it to the world. But yeah, it's definitely an interesting point because both Kopitar and Dustin Brown had huge surges in production last season after a summer of the Kings saying they were going to ignite their offense. And we kind of mocked them. We're like, what does that even mean? No, they said they were going to activate their defense. No, they activate the offense. No, they were going to activate their defense to help the offense. No, really? Oh, my gosh. Activate their defense? I'm pretty sure you said they were going to activate the offense is what they said. All right, no, I think your offense is just, like, perpetually activated. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. They, <laughs> regardless, please tweet at us at Keeping Carlson and make fun of us and tell us what was the thing that we made fun of last summer. I feel like maybe then you just said this, the wrong thing last summer. But okay. No, definitely not. Why, why would you think that right now I'm saying the right thing and you're not just saying... That's a, come on. Okay, you're right. Come on. My wife always tells me whenever I argue about something, it's like, you know that... I have a better memory than you. Like, I, I don't have a great memory, so fine. You don't actually believe that I'm right. You just want to put this to bed. Well, we got to keep going, right? We got to keep going. And regardless of what they said, it did come true. Like, whether it's because of the coach and the system or it was just luck, you'll get into that, I'm sure. Like, Anse Kopitar jumped from 52 points two seasons ago to 92 points, an insane increase, a 40-point increase. It's crazy. And Dustin Brown jumped from a 36-point guy completely irrelevant, to 61 points, almost doubling his point total. So clearly something happened in L.A. It wasn't like a new great player playing with them on the top line. They had like Gabrick there for a while. There was this random guy who now his name is also slipping my mind to add credence to the fact that I have a bad memory. But Alex Ayafalo was there on line one with those two for a bit. I was kind of hoping that someone like Tanner... Pearson or Tyler Toffoli would play there because there were times that I picked those guys up in fantasy and they ended up on crap lines. But okay, 
what happened there with the Kings? Like, do you think that at bad horse underscore is correct? There's also an underscore between bad and horse. Uh, do you think he was correct that we missed that one? And actually John Stevens is the exception and he was able to bring some offense out of the Kings and especially Kopitar and Dustin Brown. Or do you think there was more to the story? I don't know. I really, truly don't know. Like I stand by what I said before, thinking that a coach cannot have outside of choosing how much a player plays and in what situations a player plays, maybe with whom a player plays a coach, I don't think has a massive impact on player performance. It was a good thought, but Kopitar like already was a good player. He just had an off year. So I don't know that we can credit John Stevens with that as much as we should just be crediting Anze Kopitar for doing what we expect from him. Maybe we can give John Stevens some credit for playing Dustin Brown in more minutes than he played since essentially, I don't know, 2012-13. He was deployed as like a first-line player for the first time in about five seasons. And uh, obviously that paid off. The interesting part about how that paid off is that Dustin Brown's Uh, His points per 60 rose, so that rate stat went up. But all his other rate stats actually went down. Like he was in, he is and was last season, like it shows in his numbers, uh, in decline. So Dustin Brown played worse than he did the season before, uh, the several seasons before. But because he saw an extra two minutes of ice at even strength, and I think also some more on the power play as well, uh, he was able to make up for that. Also, Uh, got a much friendlier on ice shooting percentage, 12% on ice shooting percentage at even strength compared to a number close to eight the year before. And then the three years before that, he was between five and 7%. So maybe uh, that's a function of who he played with and also getting some of the right bounces, maybe creating some extra chances too, thanks to some coaching style. But I'm I'm not in any position to be able to determine how much credit John Stevens deserves. Maybe that could be a fun thing for us to look into, or for someone to look into, to really dig into that question and see like how they play differently. And if you could give any credit to the coach, obviously Andre Kopitar deserves a lot of that credit. That's why he's being nominated for the Hart Trophy. But I'm sure they just decide these things based on who helped their team make the playoffs. That seems to be how it works. That's why Connor McDavid is for some reason not even nominated when he's clearly the best player in the league. But let's not get into that. So who really even cares about these trophies at the end of the day? Uh, Brian... One last player I wanted to talk about, because we didn't really talk about him much during his amazing Stanley Cup run. I want to bring up Evgeny Kuznetsov. He was actually the playoff scoring leader. He had 32 points in 24 games. By the way, let's take a step back. Congratulations, Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup. Woo, Alex Ovechkin. By the way, did you? I, I'm assuming you watched. That camera didn't leave Alex Ovechkin once the game ended. It was like it was like Washington didn't, doesn't even have any other players. Like they just only showed us Ovechkin and what he was doing in his celebration, which is great. He's good, but hey, Evgeny Kuznetsov also good. And I'm not complaining. I'm just just a little observation because Kuznetsov is amazing, and Ovechkin obviously deserves the credit that he got. And I'm really happy for him. Which which capital do you figure would have been more entertaining to have the camera on? Now, obviously, you want to see how Ovi, after all these years of losing and being told he's like a bad leader because of it, because he's not North American or whatever, like, it was great to see Ovi win. I was happy. But I want to talk about fantasy, and I want to talk about Evgeny Kuznetsov. We know Ovechkin. I'm not going to ask you, like, how many goals is Ovechkin going to get next year? It's going to be close to 50, right? 45 or 50, and he's amazing. But Kuznetsov, after getting, like I said, 32 points in 24 playoff games, this was on the heels of also an amazing bounce-back regular season for Kuznetsov, who 
put up 82 points in 79 games. So over a point per game, much better than his 59 points in 82 games the season before. So he jumps up over 20 points. So fantastic bounce back. Now Kuznetsov will likely be super hyped going into next season in drafts. And my question to you is how good is Evgeny Kuznetsov? Like, should we expect 80 plus points from him next year and moving forward for the next, obviously few, like five years or whatever? Because a couple of comparisons jump out at me. Like, has Kuznetsov, first of all, passed Nicholas Backstrom in fantasy value in a one-year league? Like, Nicholas Backstrom's always been the guy you want on Washington. But last year, Backstrom only had 71 points, while Kuznetsov had 82, like I said. So I'd be curious to know who you like better between Kuznetsov and Backstrom. And another name that came to me as I was thinking about Kuznetsov is Matt Barzil, right? Another center and someone who had a great breakout year, though it was in his rookie season. He had 80-plus points. And in our fantasy rankings that we've been doing with our patrons you know, every day we've been voting on who we think the next player should be ranked we're already up to 40 plus players ranked and Barzil ended up landing 27th in our patron rankings and again this is for only a one-year league just for next year while Kuznetsov landed much further back at 45 I feel like they should be a lot closer like I feel like Kuznetsov and Matt Barzil seem pretty similar to me so so what do you think about all these comparisons and Kuznetsov in general like you see a 60 point guy 70 point guy 80 point guy what do you think I'm going to 80 point guy. Everything Kuznetsov did last season looked pretty sustainable. Uh, the jump in scoring last season compared to the one before was almost entirely thanks to Kuznetsov's increased power play role. He became a fixture on the top power play, scored 17 more points with the man advantage compared to 2016 17, and that makes up uh, much of the 24 point difference between the two years. The rest of Kuznetsov's jump in scoring probably came from taking uh, 20 more shots. Uh, well, not really, but more so converting 3% more often than in 2016-17. Uh, so maybe that regresses a little bit, but I still think he's got a really great shot at 80 next year. Outside of those particular examples, though, it, it's funny because there's nothing that really blows you away about Kuznetsov's numbers. Uh, he's 21st in the league in even strength points per 60 minutes. All right. Power play points per 60 minutes. He's not any better. Uh, he's not a big shot taker. And he also uh, benefited from a high on-ice shooting percentage, though he's had one his whole career. So I'm starting to think this is something that is going to be a feature of playing with him uh, when he's on the ice. He can help score more often. That can be a thing. So maybe it's a thing for Evgeny Kuznetsov. Okay, how about these comparisons? Who are you drafting next year first on the Capitals after Alex Ovechkin? Evgeny Kuznetsov. Okay, so finally Nicholas Backstrom falls probably to third. unless Or, talking, or you take a defenseman or you take uh, a goalie. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, like what about John Carlson potentially? Yeah. Well, we'll see what team he's on. But yeah, I would still go Kuznetsov, I think. And how about Kuznetsov versus Barzil? Do you agree with the patrons that Barzil should be ranked 27th while Kuznetsov is 45? Do you think that difference is reasonable? Or do you think they're more similar? Or do you think even Kuznetsov is better? Yeah, it's really close between the two of them. I feel like a lot of that depends on if John Tavares stays. Like, I think it's like Barzil on the power play with Tavares. That's very helpful to him. If Tavares is gone, I think Barzil's still a very talented player, but the power play is not going to do so well, in which case I would prefer Kuznetsov. But if Tavares stays, I can see them. They're probably closer than 18 spots apart, although I imagine there might be some D and goalies in between the two of them. But they seem to be in about the same category. I might even have a slight preference for Kuznetsov. Slight. 
yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I kind of am with you. And I'm a little embarrassed saying that because I don't know which way it's going to go. But I think I might draft Kuznetsov a little bit above Matt Barzil if I had the opportunity. But uh, definitely a huge breakout. And nice. like he had that great first year on the Caps. Then last year, or two seasons ago, I should say, was a disappointment for Kuznetsov. And like you said, it was Marcus Johansson being traded to New Jersey that really opened up the door for Kuznetsov to get on that top power play and make a difference. Brian, remember last summer, by the way, that everyone was kind of making fun of Washington or at least criticizing them for not being really smart with their cap and ending up having to lose Marcus Johansson for nothing. And look at them now, Stanley Cup champions. Wow. They showed us. They showed us, yeah. Or I guess it goes to show that the NHL is kind of pretty random. And obviously a team with great players like Ovechkin and Kuznetsov and Backstrom, like they're going to have a chance. And if things go their way, could have been the Penguins. I could have won a little money with my Penguins bet to win the Cup. But turned out to be the Caps. And congrats to them. And congrats to us, Brian, because we're done. We've covered all of the content, and I think we're pretty much up to date with all of the important news that could be fantasy relevant up to this point. That will all change next weekend when the draft happens, and we'll definitely be getting an episode to you in a couple weeks, covering everything from there. For the patrons, we still have a patron cast coming for June, and we will do that once the draft is over, where we could get into all the fun trades and the players who get drafted and our initial thoughts there. And of course, let me mention again that we have this audio guide, which we're very excited about. You know, if, if you guys don't want it, by the way, it's fine. No hard feelings. We're going to keep giving you free podcasts every week once the season starts. But if this is something you'd be interested in, 20 plus hours of content for 15 bucks, and you get it like at the beginning of September at the latest, and you have it to listen to all throughout, just a bunch of content, talk about every single player in the league. If that's like something that you would be interested in, then check out keepingcarlson.com slash guide. You can also watch that video for more convincing and then sign up for our Kickstarter. And if we get enough signups, then I'm going to take a week off of work. Brian's going to do the same. And we're going to knock this thing out in mid-August. So that is that. And thanks again for listening to this episode. Tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. If you'd like, we are happy to give fantasy advice over Twitter. You can check out our Patreon program, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Uh, five-star review on iTunes is always appreciated. Shout out to the person who works at Plastic, whose name starts with an F that gave me my name tag at the Developers 30 Under 30 event on Thursday in Toronto. You're under 30? I'm not under 30. I was just at the event. Uh, my boss was one of the judges. And he got, it was, by the way, it was free food and drinks. It was very swanky and nice. I had a lot of really good cocktails. But yeah, I got recognized. It was very exciting. Someone was like, oh, you're Elon from the podcast. It, was, it made, made me feel nice. But okay, shout out to you. And Brian, with that, why don't we cue the outro music? And why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Hockey podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Corsica, Natural Statric, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Leak Prospects, Roto World, and Fantrack. Great job, as always. Brian, we will catch all of you in a couple of weeks. Like I said, the patrons will be scheduling a patron cast soon. Thanks again! Until then, keep on keeping Carlson. Have fun at the draft, everybody. Yeah, have fun at the draft. Cameron Robinson is going to be there live. Wow. What a guy.